Hello and welcome to Brainstorium. I'm Anna Tizard, dream punk and contemporary fantasy author and reliably zany inspiration mystic, I like to think, helping you get in touch with the furthest reaches of your imagination. This is the ninth episode and finally, I'm going to be reading out The Midnight Ship. So it's going to be a slightly longer than usual podcast and don't forget I'll be playing some Exquisite Corpse at the end so do stick around for that. Now because this has been such a collaborative journey with The Midnight Ship I've decided to do something special with it and I've turned it into a mini ebook which is free to download I even commissioned a beautiful cover by Emily's World of Design. Emily is so amazing and this might actually be the best one yet in the book of exquisite corpse. I just want to make this as widely available as possible. Um, so please do download it at anatizar.com. Just scroll beneath my photo and share it with anyone else you think might enjoy this. Between us, we can spread the joy and the tentacles as far as possible. Right, time to get on with the story. The Midnight Ship Plumes of sweetness touched the air. Something was different tonight. The scent of the sea rolled around him, bracing. It ran its briny fingers through the breeze, as if seeking out this other, foreign, floral waft, gone in an instant. The sea, it was his anchor. Elgart, bearded, tapping his pipe against the edge of the stern, was a dealer in the known. Solid objects, cargo that could be weighed in the hands, that had a measurable mass and a practical use. He sniffed, turning his weathered blue eyes to the fading horizon. Gone were the days when traders of the unknown were permitted on these shores. Elusive wooden boxes containing things which couldn't truly be boxed. Wishes, dream casts, bad memories to be thrown overboard in the distant ocean of forgetfulness, under an overcast sky so the stars wouldn't see. The ship gypsies, the gypsies, who were rumoured to still dabble in these trades, making dark deals to glitter their palms with gold, they were gone from this now respectable port. The managers knew Elgart well enough to leave him to his own devices on a Tuesday night, recognising he was already home on his modest schooner, had nowhere to go back to. He'd keep an eye open for any illegal or unknown goings-on. Elgart's sneer flashed white in the, in the moon haze. Tonight, he was the illegal activity footsteps and low voices. He tensed, glad he hadn't thought to light his lantern yet, until he caught the silhouettes of two people, heads huddled close together. Just a couple strolling past. His hand rose to tip his cap at them as they passed, but they were too engrossed in each other to notice the likes of him. Since leaving his normal life behind, a wife, a half-shipsy, never satisfied with anything he brought home, and a son grown up now, old enough to not need him around, Elgart had begun to feel increasingly invisible, like his secret. Behind him, ropes dabbed the water. 
out there, not far behind his low schooner and tethered tightly, was his other vessel, the Midnight. Only when the moon rose to its highest point, not long now, the ship would creak and sway into view. The perfect vessel for trade in the unknown. Something that could hide from real life even better than he did. The woman had come by the swinging lantern yesterday, wrapped almost head to ankle in an indigo cloak, only her nose and mouth sticking out. Even in the smoke fog, her figure struck Elgart as being strange enough, too strange for him to be seen talking to without pricking suspicion. Why couldn't these unknown traders learn to dress normally for Pete's sake? He gritted his teeth under his thick moustache and strode past her, his eyes cast elsewhere, and gave a low flick of his fingers that only she would see. True, if she followed him straight away it might be obvious, except that all, all the locals were busy laughing at each other's jokes, and misty-eyed with beer and rum. Better just to get her out of here before anyone had a chance to really look at her. As Elgart stepped outside and turned left, the punter's beard-slurred voices made him jump. They were so close through the open window. Like a ton tiny stone it was, and it was a kraken's egg. Nah, that was just your wife's heart, that was. Cold and hard. Oi, watch it. Elgart rolled his eyes and kept going. But like any other captain worth their salt, he kept his boat clear, swept clear, of loose stones, not because they might turn out to be a kraken's egg when they touched the water. How ridiculous. But in case an unknown trader, having certain beliefs, came on to inspect before a deal. No point making the customer uncomfortable. Same reason Elgart never set sail on a Friday, nor whistled on his boat, though he stopped short of getting the anchor tattoo so beloved of sailors in these parts. There was something about the sea that stirred superstition in even the hardiest of folk. It was best to fall in step with the locals if you didn't want to stand out. Left again, up the side of the building. As the voices faded into the night, it occurred to Elgart that the only sound besides the distant rush of the sea was his own boots crunching on the gravel. He began to doubt his little customer had got the message, but he didn't dare turn until he was under the sheltered darkness of the trees, where only a trader well-versed in the secrets of the unknown would be sure to trace his outline away from the pub's homely lights. Finally, by the ancient oak, he turned, and jolted back a step. What the? The figure stood less than an arm's length away. She must have tailed him like a shadow all the way. Not a she. The cloak thrown back, Elgart stared into the pointed face of a male elf. For a few seconds measured in heartbeats, they stood in silence. Perhaps the creature was giving Elgart the necessary grace for his all-too-human eyes to adjust. The quiet glow the elf now emitted was a mere shimmer, a silver sparkle, like a handful of distant starlight cast over his skin, or pushing up from under it. Elgart took a breath to speak, but the soft earth scents of the wooden floor crept into his lungs, touched with a floral perfume and a pang of déjà vu. A strange yearning swept over him, so far from home, or so it felt. Without the nod and sway of the sea under his boots, he felt unsteady. 
The scented cloud seemed to disperse, and the elf's sharp features clarified as his skin flickered more brightly with silver pinpricks. Elgart's head began to whir. This elf, what was he doing here, so far from sacred land? The creature spoke. I need a lift tomorrow night. A lift? Elgart frowned. He wasn't used to company on his schooner, and definitely not his midnight. It was impossible, surely, but suspicion spiked in his chest that the elf knew about his invisible secret. There's not much space on my schooner once I've filled her up. What cargo have you got? I've already got several orders on the go. I understand you have a ship that belongs to the sea. Spoken so lightly and so directly. Elgart tensed, but he neither affirmed nor denied it. So, the elf knew about the midnight. But maybe it couldn't be helped. Elves knew about all manner of magical things. That was their business, their way. It was also their way to speak about almost everything as if it were a part of everything else, tied together by some mystical connection. Not his problem. Huh, you might say all ships belong to the sea. He trailed off. The elf had belt bent down to unlace his boots, wincing slightly, and set them aside. What's with the boots, said Algart. These footwear, I wear them to blend in but I cannot listen properly with these human things covering my feet. They disconnect me from the earth. You listen with your feet? Elgart bit back a chuckle, but the elf's cheekbones seemed to sharpen as he retorted. The ways of elves are no business of yours, human. Elgart folded his arms across his chest, taking in a breath. It was reassuring to know how strong he must look to this wafer creature with its delicate star-pricked skin. I might say the same thing about elves poking their noses into my business. So I'm curious now, what is this lift you want from me so badly that you come to find me in the swinging lantern in this, you call this a disguise? Elgart spread his hand to the indigo cloak and the boots on the ground, his cheeks warming as his irritation flared. And how much are you prepared to pay me, considering you've already thrown insults into the deal as well? The elf bristled, his skin flashing as if in annoyance. Elgart just stopped himself from flinching, though he couldn't help blinking fast at that white light, before he realised the elf's shoulders had slumped in resignation. I will speak the truth. I am sick, according to the laws of our culture. I fell in love with a human woman. She enjoyed my company for a while, but then... He shook his head, glancing at Elgart's unfolding arms. Then away, his cheeks flushed an ordinary pink. He looked almost human. Elgart swallowed his shock at this sudden candidness. There was someone else? The elf nodded. I was made to stay here by my kind, to carry out menial tasks. It is a deep disgrace to do what I did, but that time is over now. His arms dangled helplessly at his sides, palms open. I must make my way back. I must return to our island of starlight, where I can drink from pocket leaves again and never feel like this again, recover completely from what should never have happened. Elgart had no idea what pocket leaves were, but he was actually beginning to sympathise with this creature. 
His woman left him for another man? He knew how that felt. That is, he'd long suspected his wife's straying attentions, but he'd never been able to prove it. He got out before he could know for sure. The distrust that had grown between them was enough, an insurmountable wall. And here they both stood, elf and human, exiled from their previous lives. Although, to be fair, Elgart had more dignity in making his own choice to start afresh. The elf cut across his thoughts. The way to the island is secret, and I can only get there by a magical vessel. I must therefore ask that I steer the ship without you seeing where she goes. It was a few long beats before understanding began to stir in Elgart's mind, turning like a clock's hand. You want me to hide below deck on my own ship while you take the helm? The idea of it snaked inside his gut. And yet, what was the real risk exactly? The elf's skin flashed with anxiety, his voice rising. The island is sacred and the way cannot be revealed to any non-elf. It is a law I cannot break, punishable by death. I am tethered by the magic and our laws of our people. Yes, yes, Elgar swatted this away. He'd heard all this tethering stuff before. There is a repetitive motto about magic's promise, binding with its binds, something like that. Gypsies like to stitch it into pretty handkerchiefs, both a warning and a joke, since they can bend and reshape the laws of elvish magic however they liked, allegedly. Either way, Elgart didn't need to hear the well-worn phrase again. How much, then, for this special favour? Hiding out on my own ship? Lending you the helm? Shall we say ten gold pieces? The elf narrowed his eyes. I have no money, though I carry some items of high magical value. If you lend me your ship for one night, staying on the lower deck for the journey there and back, I'll send a wind that will push her home. I will lend you one of three items. They'll find their way back to me within seven days. That's plenty long enough for their magic to take effect. Your choices. A belt buckle that will give you faith. The elf parted his cloak on one side and spread a glowing palm to the silver buckle at his waist. An intricate design tapered around the edge. Fine workmanship. Elgart paused, but held his tongue. It was better to let the elf present his other choices without giving any way any preference. A ring that will bring you love, the elf continued, revealing a bright white ring dangling from a leather cord around his neck. Now, wasn't that a diamond protruding from the centre and a big one at that? Or these boots, which will show you the truth. Elgart slid a hand over his beard, smothering a grin. A choice of three. That's how the stories went, wasn't it? Wait, wasn't that another hard and fast rule the elves were bound by? To be truthful when bargaining with a choice of three? Another waft of that strange perfume floated by, rosy curlicules unfolding in his mind's eye. Yes, it was another of those unbreakable elf laws. He was sure of it. The ring caught the light from the elf's skin, tempting him with its obvious value. But love? He'd already had his taste of that. He didn't need another broken marriage, 
another child to stray around the outskirts of his mind, making him feel like he'd forgotten something, missed something, even when the boy was old enough to take care of himself. Such ties were of no use to him now. His eyes strayed to the belt. What about faith? Faith in what? He, he was a straightforward kind of guy who believed in cause and effect. What was faith but a belief, a conviction, in something that might or might not turn out to be real? He couldn't see the sense in willfully choosing such a thing. To allow your very thinking, your reasoning, to be affected by magic, it was better to have a firm grasp on the truth. Yes, truth. Truth might be painful, might be difficult to swallow, but it was real. Perhaps there was something about being so close to these magical objects that got his mind roving like a galleon over new seas. Something was missing from his life. The idea had been lurking for a while now. Something he couldn't quite put his finger on. And here was this elf, who appeared almost from nowhere, glimmering at him from the shadows of the trees to offer him exactly this, some kind of insight he was missing. For too long he'd carried wooden boxes to and from little-known islands, unofficial ports in coves and ragged beaches, unable to even take a peek at the unknown secrets within. It struck him that in hiding himself away, out on the water, smuggling for these nameless people who came and went, his life was becoming a kind of wooden box itself. He spent so much time alone, thinking almost nothing, his thoughts drawn out towards the never-ending horizon and to the sea, his constant companion, that he'd begun to suspect even he had a kind of secret growing inside him something even he couldn't see. Elgart shook his head. These were far-flung thoughts indeed, and the elf was waiting. Make your choice, the elf said. The creature's eyes betrayed nothing, only the loneliness of his confession, a flicker of despair. Elgart glanced over the objects, or what he could see of them under the shrouded can canopy. Well, in the same stories that said elves were bound by the rule of three, fools were tricked into choosing the gift that seemed to have the highest material value. It was always the rough, ordinary-looking object that had the best magic. The elf might not be allowed to lie about this deal, but perhaps the ring the love promised would be unrequited, or the love of a foolish thing like a cliff edge. Or faith might be in an ambition that could never be fulfilled. But truth, you could rely on truth. There was something he just needed to check first. He pointed at the boots. May I take a look? Look all your wish, but you may not touch a magical object until it's yours. Huh, was that another dig at him for claiming ownership of the, of the midnight? Elgart smuggled down the urge to mutter something under his breath as he bent to inspect the boots. The elf obliged him by opening a light-speckled palm over them. Bit small, aren't they? They expand or contract to suit the wearer. Hmm. Do they expand or contract the truth, I wonder? The elf showed no sign of amusement. The magic they contain will open your eyes to your own life's truth. So, only as small or as narrow as your own mind. 
Blimey, he sure has a way of packing in those insults, thought Elgart as he peered closer. But good to know the truth won't be a bunch of random, pointless facts of no interest to me. He peered at the decorative markings along the rims of the boots. The stitched-in patterns formed distinct rune signs, very elvish, none of the joined-up loops of the shipsy style. His half-shipsy ex-wife had taught him what to be wary of. Shipsies laced stories together, embroidering memories, facts and fable, into a multi-threaded tale, as intricate as the looping patterns they sewed onto their lapels, belts, cuffs and bracelets. Stories that could lead you astray, or take you where they wanted you to go, if you paid the seller enough. Elvish magic was plainer than Shipsy, in both senses of the word, much easier to see what you were getting. The rune shapes stood out nice and clear as soldiers along the leather. No hidden extras here, no hidden twists or links to bind the wearer to an unwanted fate. Relieved, he straightened up, drawing in an easy breath. He hadn't realised he'd been holding it. Okay, meet me at Sayers Point tomorrow. I'll be alone. I'll be there. The elf bent to pull on his boots, as if they were the most ordinary things in the world, and turned to leave. Wait, any boxes to come with you? The elf bobbed his head to the side in a manner that seemed both human and intricately studied. A few, to remain unopened throughout the journey. Elgart spread his hands in surprise. Of course. Why would the elf even question unspoken rules as basic as that? I'll be seeing you then. The elf turned right into the forest and disappeared as noiselessly as he'd come. Back in the swinging lantern, Elgart ate a hurried meal of fish stew and bread. The ghost of his meeting with the elf sat with him, making him feel unsociable, but his desire to be left alone only seemed to amplify other people's voices. Cursed it was, and nothing she could do about it. Should have spoken to my mate, Selwyn. He can twist a tail into a bracelet, that'll set her right. Just needs to wear it for two weeks, that's all. Selwyn? Too expensive for my tastes. It was this sick sense of gloom he hated about the locals. They lived under their own shadows, shadows of their own making, winding superstitions into every story they told so they could predict yet more doom at every turn. Throwing down his napkin, Elgot let his chair clatter out behind him and strode towards the door. A stunned silence from the crowded table made him turn. A dozen stony stares accused him. He said the first thing that came into his head. Couldn't you just talk about the weather or something? They glared at each other and a woman let out a cackle. The weather would hardly make any difference round here, would it? He let the door bounce against their raucous laughter. Fresh air and silence. Despite the woman's joke, another clear, still night. He drank it in, though it was never empty. Even the air felt full of ghosts, swarming with unboxed unknowns. Is this what happened to non-magical beings when they handled too much magic? Look who's getting superstitious now. No, he decided as he strolled down to the beach towards home. There was just something about that elf that rattled him. 
He'd found the midnight and claimed it fair and square, nodding on the waters at dead of night. No cargo, no one on it, a ghost ship, empty of ghosts. He'd been strangely lucky that his mooring pin had come loose during the night and he'd been adrift, unawares, until a heavy bump against the schooner thrilled his nerves awake. Stumbling onto the upper deck, seeing the ship, then not seeing it, he'd held out his lantern until his arm began to ache, staring at the restless sea until he thought he'd been dreaming. Then the moon showed her face, and there it was. Beautiful, elegant, impossible, far grander than his little schooner, visible only in moonlight, the perfect vessel for carrying cargo that shouldn't exist, a sea vessel built for secrets. No crew, no need for a crew. As he took the helm, she turned and creaked, her sails seeming to tilt for the wind. A mind of her own? He tried not to think about it, although that was still better than if there were an invisible, light-footed crew. He tried even harder not to think about that. He tethered his schooner to the side and guided her, his midnight, and was guided by her back to shore. Finders keepers. Cradling a bottle of whiskey, he waited on the schooner for the elf. He meant to drink to steady his nerves, but he found himself listening instead. Always, night time brought this clarity. The world grew still and knew itself. The sea, ever restless in the day, took a moment between breaths. A sharpness arose in his mind as if he'd been in a dream all day. Only now did he sense the true danger, the enormity of the sea, here under the stars. It was a sensation he often avoided, not wanting to get spooked before bed, but now that he might hold real magic in his hands and see the truth, whatever that was, he let his mind open to the quietness that swelled around him. What was that weird phrase his ex-wife used to quote at him? To possess an unpossessable thing is to yourself be possessed. He always thought it was a joke about their marriage and the true control a woman, certainly a shipsy woman, might have in a relationship against any false ideas a husband might entertain. But lately, he'd been wondering about the dangers of handling magic. The elf... He sensed rather than heard a movement, cutting through his thoughts like a knife. He risked lifting his lantern. A stack of wooden boxes seeming to move by itself across the port. It had to be him. The boxes looked heavy. Even if they were empty, anyone of the elf's size and build would struggle with all that wood, especially without being able to see in front of him. Yet the creature carried them as if they were made of cardboard and see-through. The boots? Elgar couldn't see them. Surely the elf hadn't put them in one of those boxes. That would be like mocking the trader's code. Could this be a trick to get Elgar to guess which of these three boxes contained them? So he'd pick the wrong one and... Boom! Whatever happened when a non-magical being opened one of those damned wooden boxes? Well, he wouldn't stand for it. No way was that stinking creature stepping on his schooner, let alone the beauty tethered behind it, if he was going to play tricks. 
His fists clenched as he waited for the elf to get close enough. He wouldn't risk raising his voice. The elf stepped onto the loading board, into the puddle of light from Elgart's lantern. But there were the boots on his feet. In spite of his relief, Elgart's cheeks flushed with annoyance. They both knew the elf didn't need to wear them and preferred not to. So why had he chosen to stick his dirty feet in them right before handing them over? They were as good as Elgart's property, for seven days anyway. Still wearing the boots, he said as the elf stepped up. The elf didn't even blink. They're part of my disguise, if you recall. Elgart was about to point out the obvious strangeness of a child-sized person carrying a wooden tower taller than himself, when the elf added, No one saw me carrying these. I hid them close by, last night. Elgart narrowed his eyes as the elf stepped onto the schooner. So, the creature admitted he'd been here last night, carrying his cargo on silent feet to wherever he could stow them in safety. Perhaps in one of those nearby caves. Had he spied on the midnight at the same time? Or on Elgart as he slept? The back of his neck prickled. Something wasn't right about all this. What if he'd interfered with the midnight in some way? Let me take those for you, he said, hurrying after the elf, who had stacked the three boxes next to the wider loading board rigged between the schooner and the ship. The elf already had two boxes on the plank and shoved the weight of the second one against the first until there was a thud onto the ship's deck on the other side, even as she flickered in and out of view. His movements were so quick and confident, Elgart wondered if the elf could see the ship at all times through magic. Already the creature was striding along the board ahead of him, although he'd left one box behind as if to prove his willingness to accept a little assistance. Wait, Elgarf called. The elf turned, a relaxed smile on his sparkling face. Oh, of course, I almost forgot your payment. Here. He leaned on one leg, perfectly balanced on the board, and pulled the boots off one by one. Catch! Elgart rushed forwards and caught the boots, just. The elf's second throw was even lazier, drawing Elgart so close to the edge of the boat, he had to lean right over to catch the boot. More than a boot. Though the elf had tossed it as lightly as a set of keys, the weight of it strained Elgart right over the side. What was this thing? He gasped in surprise, his muscles burning as he was dragged lower over the side. He couldn't just let go. Why should the elf get the better of him? The magic of truth was his. But it was too much. The boot was a lead weight, pulling him down into the sea with a splash. He clutched it, even as the freezing water shocked his skin and bubbles shuddered over his face. Just as he prepared to kick his way up, a tiny piece of gravel floated out of the boot, shaken loose. Don't let it touch the water. Too late. Kicking wildly, Elgart scrambled for the surface and the edge of his boat, but everything seemed to happen in slow motion. Even his lungs grew still as he watched and waited for the impossible, the inevitable. The stone swelled to a knuckle, then a fist-sized pebble glowing dimly. Now it was the size of his head, now as big as his own body. 
A crack drew its lightning jag down the centre and the egg, for that's what it was, began to split. The tip of a tentacle coiled out. A dab, another dab, as the creature felt its way around the membrane, as if with dainty curiosity. Each fleshy leg probed and unrolled itself, doubling, tripling in length. The thing coiled back and wrenched itself from the husk of the egg remains, like a body turning itself inside out. With a heave of something that's waited centuries to escape, its bulbous body burst through. Pink tubular flesh reached for Elgart, each tentacle puckered with rows of soft white cups, deadly suckers. They glimmered with bioluminescence as they wrapped around his body. The head opened. It was a mouth within a mouth. Helpless, Elgart stared into a corridor of inward-pointing blades. A circle of knife-sharp teeth encircled by another, sliding back and forth over the first to chomp around a tunnel of darkness. But with each contraction, the loose skin either side flapped like ancient jowls. The sack-like head flopped forward to regard its meal. Faced with that blackened eye, Elgart was useless, transfixed. Tentacles snaked around Elgart. Empty of bone, they were nothing but muscle. All the better to grip his right leg and torso. Shocked into movement by its touch, Elgart tugged away, but he was held fast. The only way was down, closer to his doom. Was this truth? For a wild moment, he thought, the elf cannot lie under the rule of three, but the boots and the deal, like the ship, were long lost, a life quickly disappearing above him. Elgart's lungs twitched, hankering for air. Should he give in now and drown before those teeth cut him in half? Tentacles slithered over his chest, as if seeking out more of him, hungry to know his shape completely before he was made unrecognisable. The suckers opened and closed against his skin like fleshy flowers. They pulsed like mouths trying to speak. Those sounds. Was the creature trying to talk to him? I'm dying, thought Elgart. This is the nonsense your brain makes up when it begins to suffocate. Muffled sounds quickened in the water. Elgart's grip on reality slipped upwards, away from him, into vast lurching skies, places he would never see again. A sucker closed over the top of his head, and the words came clear. You are almost a part of the sea now, so close. You tethered the ship well, and it's tethered you back. Soon you'll be invisible. Invisible? Didn't it mean dead? Elgart's mind struggled numbly against his body's paralysis. The voice, the knowing, seemed to understand or anticipate his confusion. As if humouring its helpless prey, it said, You let yourself be trapped. You were disappearing from your own life, and soon it would have swallowed you. All magic has a price, and you will pay. You asked for the truth, and the elf has given it to you. Your wife is in love with another man. You knew this would happen. It's why you came here, although it is not why you stayed, living like a fugitive from your own life. 
the sea will have your soul if you stay longer. The elf will take the ship. This is not stealing. It was never yours and will never be his. The elf will return it to the sea where it belongs. Your son misses you. Your son needs you. Your son is in love. The moor gnashed its teeth closer, closer. Enough! Elgart's lungs were buckling now, ready to burst. Blindly he pulled the pipe from his pocket and stabbed the creature's head. Ink, blood, darkness sprayed around him. He could taste it in the water as he choked back the need to breathe. Blinded, he stabbed again and again. A scream filled his head, obliterating all other thoughts. The tentacles loosened, and in a final effort, Elgart kicked upwards. His head above the surface, he gasped, coughing, splashing like a child who couldn't swim. He dragged himself up onto his boat and lay panting. His lungs burned as he heaved for air. The moon was out, kissing the edges of the ship into view still only a short distance away. The elf hadn't even set sail. All this time, while Elgart was facing death in the kraken's clutch, had the elf just stood there, tapping his foot? The elf gave a casual wave. A message from your wife. She wants a proper divorce. And with that, he began to lift the mainsail, turning it to catch the breeze. From where he lay, still sprawled on the deck of his small boat, Elgart watched the elf's slow and steady retreat. There was nothing to say. Take the ship, he thought. If I've heard the truth today, then you're doing me a favour. Elgart's gaze fell on the third box, still sitting on his boat. He stared at it, wondering what it meant, but other thoughts soon crowded in on him. Who was the elf to his ex-wife? Not the other man. Elgart's mind scrambled for answers as he lay, coughing onto the deck. But it hardly mattered, did it? It really didn't matter. They'd made a deal, the two of them, and his wife had delivered her message. He lay, listening to the waves, feeling the cool air dry his face. He was done with the sea. The sea was done with him. He could feel it leaving him, as the midnight retreated into the darkness. Like the fading of a dream as you wake up, a ghost had lived inside him. That phrase, to possess, to be possessed. He'd had it with magic, with secrets he couldn't or shouldn't touch. And yet, Elgar couldn't take his eyes off the wooden box. He couldn't bear it any longer, not knowing what was inside. This was one last secret he had to tear open, strip bare, even if it killed him. He couldn't walk away until he knew everything, what this life of his had really been about. Dragging himself up, he stumbled over to the box and bashed the side of it with his fist again and again. He reached in his pocket for his pipe, thinking to wrench it open that way, and almost laughed at this old habit. His pipe was long gone. He sat down and felt around the joins for a weakness and opening. There, splinters dug under his fingernails, drawing blood, but he didn't care. The wood began to give. He probably had a screwdriver somewhere below deck. But he couldn't risk losing a moment. What if the kraken wasn't quite dead? 
He gritted his teeth, pulling. It's not over until... Again, one last final tug and the side came away. He peered in. Nothing. The box was empty except for a couple of dry leaves scattered in the bottom and... That scent. The floral smell that had lingered around the elf. What did it mean? He reached in and took out one of the leaves, turning it over. It was large and fleshy, with a pouchy shape, as if it had once contained some sort of liquid. Pocket leaves? For drinking on a long journey? Elgart stared at the wooden frame. He'd never considered the boxes were big enough to fit an elf before, a determined one, banished from his lands and desperate to visit them. To bathe in starlight or meet family in secret. But the time of secrets was over, and now the creature sailed freely, openly, on a ship that belonged to the sea. Yes, the time for hiding was over. Your son needs you. Your son is in love. The words echoed in Elgart's mind as he clambered off the boat, clothes dragging at him as if they were still bound to the sea and didn't want to leave. Your son is in love. It was so strange. Stranger than the grand ship leaning into the moonlight, the elf nowhere to be seen, perfectly hidden in his indigo cloak. A piece of the night. The elf, too, was tethered, in his own way. Wasn't everyone? Each life had its own trappings, even when you tried to pull away. You dealt your hand well, Elgart murmured, nodding at the retreating shape. He couldn't be sure of it, but he thought he saw a flash of silvery pale. The elf raising a hand in a wave? He wouldn't dare. Of course he would. Elgart chuckled until it was lost in a sigh. Yes, every life had its binds, human, elf or shipsy, until something came along to show you that you still had choices, other storms to ride. He turned his back on the shore and walked into the night. The end. Is it the end? Surely not. Because it is time to play Exquisite Corpse once again. Bring forth the Socks of Destiny. Right, well, I've had loads of new people send words, which is very exciting. So the Socks of Destiny are feeling pretty full again. And I'm excited to see how they might combine in zany new ways. So first of all, we have a describing word, which is from Lady Karma. Scorned. Okay, so who was scorned? Let's pick a noun. This is from Fraser Armitage. Ventriloquist. <laughs> wow, a scorned ventriloquist. I wonder if their puppets said anything bad about them. Know what I mean? Okay, so that is a possibility. <laughs> Quite a creepy one as well. Right, let's get an action. Action entry is from, this is a Twitter ID, Becky underscore Clough. Bashed with a wooden spoon. <laughs> This is feeling very Punch and Judy. This is quite strange. 
So who or what did the ventriloquist bash with a wooden spoon? And was that the basis for them being scorned? Oh, this is again from Becky underscore Clough. That's the thing with the sorts of destiny. You never know what's coming next. Oily. <laughs> if you bash something with a wooden spoon, this is oily. I don't know, you're just, you're just gonna get oil all over your spoon. But anyway, let's um, set that aside and get me a noun, which is from Alessandro Pozzo. <laughs> Palm reader. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is totally um, like fairground. We have a ventriloquist and an oily palm reader, a sweaty palm reader. Oh no! <laughs> Is it like, so <laughs> this palm reader, <laughs> you could read this as the palm reader will only read sweaty palms. <laughs> I would have thought that would be an occupational hazard coming across sweaty palms rather than something you would actively look for. I'll read your palms, but they must be sweaty. But for some reason, we have violence here. The ventriloquist is so unhappy with the sweaty palm reader that he or she is, is bashing them with a wooden spoon as if that palm reader were one of his puppets. This is really weird. I think I'm gonna have to have some green tea and have a think about it. I do use the palm, um, do use the palm. I, I use the pause button, not the palm button, the pause button quite a lot. Um, I just wanted you to know that. I don't instantly come up with all of these ideas, although some of them spring out at me quite quickly. But um, yes, it takes a bit of a little bit of green tea. I was uh, thinking about how if I were to do this live, it would be a bit of a nightmare and I would be drinking quite a lot of green tea to make the excuse to stop from time to time because you've, you know you've got to pause and have a think so feel free to pause whenever if you are in fact doing a brainstorm yourself so let's give some of this green tea a go right does that make any difference at all why did the scorned ventriloquist bash with a wooden spoon the oily palm reader. I actually think all the clues are, are here in the exquisite corpse. The ventriloquist has been scorned by none other than the palm reader and the palm reader has expressed contempt for this ventriloquist perhaps because of his sweaty palms. <laughs> having been inside puppets all day. That's kind of creepy at the same time in more than one way. Um, there is a certain creepiness about puppets and the, this oily palm reader. It makes me think that the palm reader is telling more than the future. Um, I wonder if I think it's just the overall uh, fairground scene that I've got growing in my mind with these puppets. What if 
the puppets are starting to take over. They're taking over the fairground and the palm reader is on their side. There's an uprising of puppets and the palm reader wants to help them or maybe the palm reader's frightened um, of not helping them out, of being uh, against them, being seen to be against them. Um, and of course the ventriloquist will be the most scorned person there because this is someone who's always seemed to control the puppets. That's the person who uh, makes them speak, makes them speak what, what he thinks they should say. Oh, this is creepy. Please let me know if you come up with a story for this because I'm getting creeped out here, but I think it's ripe for a story. Um, but I think we need to let it rest as, as I like to do and then perhaps come back to it uh, once this idea has ripened on its metaphysical tree. So let's try another exquisite course. Right, the first describing word is from me. I couldn't resist, I had to put something in. Haunted. Okay, so what was haunted? This is from, if I can get it out of the bag, oh, it's getting caught around my fingers. This is from Edge O'Erin1, that's a Twitter ID. Draugr, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, I had to look this up. So a Draugr, D-R-A-U-G-R, um, is an undead creature from Scandinavian literature and folktale. So <laughs> not only is this uh, the undead, kind of like a zombie, this this Draugr is haunted. Does that make sense? How could, That's like you're doubly undead. Goodness me. Okay, well, let's just see what happens to this Draugr or what, who they're interacting with. This is from Mariah. Flew by. Flew by. So that could actually have two meanings. Either, either we're going to learn the mechanism by which this Draugr flew. Okay, so, you know, flew by plane or whatever. That's really not going to come up, is it, in the Socks of Destiny? Or they flew past someone or something. So interesting. Let me um, grab another describing word then. Who will this be from? This is from, it's a Twitter ID, uh, Denison underscore Elena. Slim. Okay. Not really sure where this is going. But let's try our final noun. This is from Travis, uh, whose Twitter ID is mfibrillations. Silver locket. Ooh, a slim silver locket. <laughs> Not sure of the significance of that. So we have the haunted Draugr flew by the slim silver locket. 
I'm going to need some more green tea. Definitely. Right. Okay. So, when I looked up Draugr or Draugr, um, there was mention of burial mounds. So, and the pictures were all of sort of warriors, even though it was saying an undead creature, it was like, well, this is obviously a person and perhaps more likely to be a warrior, just bearing in mind a lot of folk tales might well have been about uh, warriors and things like that. Um, and also there was a mention of treasure and I'm just looking at this thinking, well, I don't know why this silver locket is slim but it's it's a form of treasure in a way and yet this Draugr has decided to fly past it. Perhaps there's a, a decision to leave treasure behind. Was treasure the reason they died? Were they fighting in a battle over uh, who owns what? Um, trying to find some treasure or claim it as their own um, and surely this has got something to do with them being haunted but how can they be haunted this is blowing my mind slightly um, not just a zombie but also haunted on top of that Have, has there ever been a haunted zombie in literature please drop me a line and tell me because this might help unpick what this is all about but um but yeah if there's a reason why they're they're haunted that could be the basis for them making the decision to leave behind this treasure that they fought for during life or maybe the treasure is cursed um but then i can't help but think but that that might be why they've become a draugr yeah so you've got cursed You've got cursed treasure. When they're alive, they're fighting for it. They get hold of it. They die in in the process. Someone stabs them in the back at the last minute and they're buried with the treasure, perhaps. But then the treasure is, is what causes them to become the undead. So of course they're trying to fly away from that horrible fate because they'd prefer to be at, at rest of course, there is the other possibility that they flew by the slim silver locket. This is Farzania, by which I mean um, this undead creature sees a, a, a floating silver locket. Um, it's slim, <laughs> and it it must be a it must be really huge. I mean, this doesn't really make any sense. It's the silver locket of a giant. So it's huge and the Draugr gets onto it and flies. <laughs> okay, that's probably too weird, but sometimes you've got to go up these weird and wonderful alleyways, test out an idea and then say, do I want to, to go back? Maybe I want to go back. Anyway, yeah, that does, that definitely has some possibilities there. So that's not bad. I definitely need to do another one. Right, new words, new words. 
so many, so many possibilities. This is from, see, Paul Thomas, timid. Okay, so we have a timid character here, but who are they? Ah, oh, this is another of mine. <laughs> cloak. <laughs> Timid cloak. All right then, because most cloaks are just so brash and extroverted. Um, right, let's see. Who's this from? This is from... It's a Twitter ID called Weird Micro. And so they didn't actually send the words through my webpage at anatizar.com, um, I simply dropped them a line on Twitter when I saw all of these word prompt ideas that they tweet about. So they, they tweet uh, a bundle of, of interesting words just to get authors online to come up with story ideas. So I said, I'm going to nick one of those and put them in my socks of destiny. And they said, that's fine, go ahead. So the word is deserted. Ooh, can a cloak desert? someone i suppose their long-term owner even though they're timid they've made a decision to desert them so hmm, interesting aha this is again from a newbie travis at mfibrillations this is angelically simple oh why would you desert someone who is angelically simple i do not know maybe if we know who or what this is we'll understand so this is from anonymous which so not only do we have a cloak and a witch in the same exquisite corpse which is a bizarre coincidence okay we also have perhaps the other end of the scale an anti-coincidence in a way an angelically simple witch um, I'm not sure what to make of that. This is an unusual kind of witch who is angelically simple because I always think at the very least you'd need incredible intelligence to grasp the intricacies of magic and um, yeah. And why would, if you had a cloak that had a life of its own, why would it choose to desert a witch who doesn't sound particularly nasty. Um, in fact, that I mean, they might be simple somehow, but they're even angelically simple. Um, so they sound like a potentially very lovely person. But perhaps there comes a time in, in every sentient cloak's life that they have to leave their witch behind. No matter how an angelic or simple that which may be, the cloak simply needs to move on and have its own life. Um, strange that it's timid, though. Hmm. A cloak is a thing that travels with you, and maybe the cloak has had enough travelling. It gets cold on the broom. It wants to settle down and become a blanket um <laughs> i can't think of anything else any other reason why it's just yeah it's a really weird one but it does 
in my mind I'm thinking of all these adventures that they could go on together. I can't imagine that they would get very much done because the cloak's very timid, doesn't like the travel, comes with the job. Um, and the witch, despite being angelic, is kind of simple. So I just feel like they're this low functioning team, you know, um, it's, it's not really working out. So perhaps they need to, they need to go their separate ways. And the cloak is the one to make that decision. So I think that's pretty much all I've got on that one. But again, if you if you find yourself writing a story from any of these exquisite corpses, I would love to hear from you. Um, and maybe if you're not as timid as this cloak, um, I'm sure you wouldn't possibly be as angelically simple as the witch. Please send me a short story, like a flash fiction piece. And you never know, I might, if I love it, I might read it out on the show. It could become a part of Brainstorium. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed The Midnight Ship and that The Exquisite Corpse has inspired you or at least made you laugh a few times. Don't forget to download your free copy of the book um, at anatizard.com. Well, it's, it's a short story, but it is. It's a mini, mini book. And please do share it with a friend or three. Um, it really will help me. Uh, if, if others can discover my stories and what I do, that's the whole point, to share it as, as widely as possible. And of course, my Exquisite Corpse games can only get better if we can encourage more people from different places, different walks of life to join in and send words to my play page. So, until next time, stay well, go forth and be inspired.